Back in Matthew 5 this morning, Um, hopefully you all have the notes that I made available there. When I have so many scriptures, I especially I like to give you a handout of basically the flow of the message so it's easier for you to follow, and hopefully that's helpful to you. Uh, This morning we're going to continue our journey through the Beatitudes, as they're called, of Jesus, uh, focusing our attention on the fourth saying. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I'd like to read, uh, as I've done every week, verses 1 through 10. Get the whole section here in our minds, and then we'll pray. Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 5, we read, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, I do thank you so much uh, for your word. I thank you that we have an anchor for our souls. In a relativistic world where people have many given up the notion of truth, or at least that's what they say, We have a sure word. We have your truth revealed in Scripture. Thank you that we can know the words of our Lord Jesus in this passage. And I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and enable us to understand what it is that you wish to say to us through this text today. I pray that as a result we'd become more like Christ. I pray for any here who may not know you, Lord, that you would open their hearts to your word this morning. Work in in their hearts by the power of your spirit. Do, Do for them what you've done for those of us who know you. Grant them, I pray, faith and repentance to trust in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for their salvation. I ask all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I think that the prophecy spoken through the prophet Jeremiah concerning the people of Judah could well be said of our own culture today. Here's what he said in Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And he's criticizing He's challenging the priests. He's bringing charges, actually, against all the people. But he's beginning with the priests, who are supposed to be spiritual leaders. And he says this, The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? That is, his priest gave up searching for him. And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit Therefore, I will bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. 
For pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and see, send to Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. He's saying to them, if you look at the pagan nations around you, even as far as you want to go, you won't see them switching their gods out like you switched out your true god for the false gods in Canaan. That's what he's saying. Even they would be more faithful than you are to me, is what God is saying to the people of Judah. These pagan people are putting them to shame because they're more devoted to their false gods than the people of Israel are devoted to the true God. It's quite an astounding thing he's saying here. And that's why he says in verse 12, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, they were seeking to satisfy their spiritual thirst through that which can never satisfy. And this is no less true of many today who, although they may not bow down to graven images, nevertheless do chase after the false gods of personal peace and affluence. As our departed brother Francis Schaeffer warned us, of sensuality and materialism, of the self elevated above all else in importance. And so doing, they're seeking spiritual water in broken cisterns that cannot satisfy the disciples of Christ were not, uh, or at least are not supposed to be, like this. Because we recognize the truth of Augustine's prayer. Thou madest us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it rest in thee. Blaise Pascal would put it this way in the 1600s. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that only God can fill. But before either of them, the inspired author of Ecclesiastes would say it this way, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. Except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. It's a pretty astounding statement there as well. He's saying God has put eternity in the hearts of men. A longing for something beyond just this material world, you might say. A, long for, a longing for someone greater than themselves, you might say. Although, having put eternity in our hearts, he didn't give us the capacity to truly grasp eternity. His, his works from beginning to end, so to speak. Thus, all men have some degree of spiritual hunger and thirst, is the assumption we see in Jeremiah and Ecclesiastes, and that Christians have recognized throughout the centuries. But it is only the true follower of Christ who hungers and thirsts for the right thing and seeks to have his appetite sated from the right source. And this is what Jesus is talking about in today's passage. When he says in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
In seeking to understand this beatitude, I want to ask and answer two questions, which should be there in your notes. The first question is this. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What's the meaning? It's clearly a metaphor. Righteousness is not something you can drink or eat. We know it's a metaphor, but what does he mean by the metaphor? We probably have some idea. In answer to this question, I think we first need to consider that what Jesus is talking about here is more than just a, a little bit of hunger and thirst for righteousness. Rather, he's referring more to a deep craving for righteousness when he speaks of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And we'll see that Jesus speaks here then of both this craving for righteousness when he speaks of hungering and thirsting for it. And also, we'll talk a little bit about what the righteousness is that that those who are blessed and are part of the kingdom of God are hungering for and thirsting for. Exactly what is this righteousness? First of all, let's see that it is indeed a craving for righteousness. As Kent Hughes, I think, correctly asserts in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, the intensity of the expression, he writes, is difficult for us to feel because if we are thirsty today, all we need to do is turn on the tap of cold, refreshing water. Or if we're hungry, we just open the refrigerator. However, the ancient Palestinian, the expression was, uh, to, excuse me, the ancient Palestinian, the expression was terribly alive because he was never far from the possibility of dehydration or starvation. It's not a comfortable picture. Jesus is far from recommending a genteel desire for spiritual nourishment, but rather a starvation for righteousness, a desperate hungering to be conformed to God's will. I think he's on the right track if we take this in the setting in which Jesus said it, as we should. But as usual, as I pointed out in this previous study of the Beatitudes, and as, as you would see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, uh, most of what Jesus is saying isn't really new. Uh, most of what he's doing is applying correctly what the people of Israel ought to have known if they read their Bible, which was the Old Testament. Um, for example, Jesus is talking about essentially the same kind of longing for God that the psalmist wrote about in the Old Testament. Uh, Consider what the sons of Korah wrote in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. Many of us have sung this in church worship songs. We have a song based on this psalm. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you. This is certainly a craving, right? A thirst. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He can't wait for the day, right, when he'll appear before God, although he doesn't say what that day is, right? Or consider what the prophet David wrote. I call him the prophet David because we often forget that he was not only a king but a prophet. And he's called a prophet in the New Testament. He wrote this in Psalm 63.1. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. I think that Jesus has in mind these kinds of things when he speaks of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Uh, It's being like a deer that's been running and searching for water, and finally finds a brook to get a drink out of. 
It's like somebody who's in a dry and thirsty land and is searching for something to drink. There's some desperation, perhaps, in this metaphor. And so Jesus speaks of this craving for righteousness, but surely when he speaks of this craving for righteousness, he's speaking of a righteousness that's found in God, right? And thus he's speaking of a longing for God. You can't long for righteousness without longing for God, who's the source of righteousness. Jesus is also using the Greek present tense here, and in, and in situations like this, a present tense is used to, to stress something that's continual. So he's stressing that this craving for righteousness is not merely momentary or temporary, to be alleviated never to return. No, it's, it's a continual craving. Those who are in the kingdom of God are constantly hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're, in today's parlance, addicted to righteousness and they can't get enough of it. <laughs> this is the idea, right? And they crave it always. And, of course, the very metaphor of hungering and thirsting in itself indicates that this is a continual hunger because we hunger and thirst every day, Right? So just as physical hunger and thirst characterize our lives as human beings, so also a spiritual craving for righteousness characterizes the life of the one who is part of the kingdom of heaven. Because remember, all of these Beatitudes have to do with those who are in the kingdom of heaven. That's why it's bookended in the beginning, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last one is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the very righteousness they seek, right? Uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So all of these beatitudes are about people who are part of the kingdom of heaven and what characterizes them. And here we see that what characterizes them is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we've talked about this craving, and now I want to talk a little bit about the righteousness that we crave, what is meant by that. And I think there are three possibilities for what Jesus has in mind here when he speaks of craving for righteousness, and I'm, I don't think we need to choose between them. I think scripturally and contextually, all of them work, and they all go together. You really can't crave righteousness in one of these senses, biblically, without craving them in the other two senses, is what I'm saying. So first, there's, there's personal righteousness, which is the desire to live a holy life. And this means that the believer has a deep yearning for a more, a more righteous daily walk with God. Uh, the believer is not satisfied with where he or she has come in their walk with God. And they want to be more righteous every day. In my mind, uh, Jesus certainly has this in view here, at least to some extent, because he's going to go on to say in the same teaching in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And there he's got the future sense. Remember, we saw... In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is future and also a sense in which it's here now. We're members of the kingdom of God now, but the fullness of the kingdom awaits the future. And that's why he teaches them to pray, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's come in Christ, but it hasn't yet come in its fullness. That awaits the second coming of, of Christ. And so you, you see that tension, right? Uh, the now, not yet tension, 
in this context. And so uh, Jesus says here when he says, and unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, he's got the future aspect of the kingdom, I think, in mind there. But notice uh, theirs was a hypocritical false righteousness. And Jesus is saying then that yours has to be a genuine righteousness. And of course, when he speaks of them hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it's a genuine righteousness he's talking about. So anyway, that's personal righteousness, I think, is part of it. Secondly, there, there's a public righteousness, which is righteousness exhibited in society. And this means that the believer has a deep yearning for righteousness to be done in the world. And he or she strives to help bring it about. Now, it seems obvious that Jesus has in, this in mind here as well. Uh, as the natural outflow of a desire for personal righteousness... People who love righteousness love it everywhere. <laughs> they want it to be everywhere. And again, that's why in chapter 6, verse 10, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us to pray to our Heavenly Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is righteousness, right? Goodness. As, as Thomas Constable has observed, when believers be well their own and society's sinfulness and pray that God will send a revival to clean things up, they demonstrate a hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's true. And then there's a third sense, and I think it might, your notes might be a little bit different because I changed my mind overnight on this. Uh, before I fixed your notes, um, <clears throat> I'm more certain that this is in mind here than I was yesterday. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Uh, thirdly, I think it's possible that Jesus ultimately ha has in mind here imputed righteousness, which is the righteousness of God that's credited to the believer. Paul teaches about this in Romans 3 and 4, right? Uh, gives a couple of Old Testament examples of this in Abraham and in David to shore up his teaching on it. And the idea of imputed righteousness is that when we come to faith in Christ, right, confessing our sins, the righteousness of Christ is credited to us as our own. It's like there's a, in fact, Paul uses sort of bookkeeping language about it. It's, it's as though there's a ledger, and on the debit side, the side that we owe, there's a sin debt, right? And God wipes that out, and on the credit side, he writes in the righteousness of Christ into our account, so to speak. That's what imputed righteousness is talking about. Righteous, righteousness is, that is reckoned to us even though it's not our own. On the cross, all of our sin was put on Jesus. He took all our sin so that we could have his righteousness in what Luther called the happy exchange. Happy indeed. That's what they're talking about. That's what I mean when I'm talking about imputed righteousness. That's the biblical teaching on imputed righteousness. And and this means that the believer, recognizing his own spiritual poverty, as we saw in verse 3, and mourning for his sin, as we saw in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, comes with meekness, we saw in verse 5, to God, yearning for a righteousness that is from God, that is not his own. Um, I think it's very possible that Jesus ultimately intends this in this passage. Um, 
it certainly is true that the Bible teaches this doctrine of imputed righteousness elsewhere. Paul taught this doctrine, as I've already said, in Romans 3 and 4, for example. And Paul claimed in Galatians that he got the gospel that he taught and taught it the way he got it from Jesus himself. So we wouldn't be surprised, right, if Jesus had this idea in his mind. He's the one who taught it to the apostles. But uh, we'll give an example from Paul who spoke of this kind of righteousness in, in Philippians. I'll read verses 7 through 9. Where Paul, Paul says this, But what things were gained to me, these have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul was emphatically expressing there a hunger and thirst for righteousness, wasn't he? And I think those who are in the kingdom who hunger and thirst for righteousness hunger and thirst this way. I think Paul's a good example of what that means in that passage. So what about you and me, though? Can we, can we say that we do indeed have a deep hunger and thirst for righteousness in any of these senses? Or perhaps have some of us, although believers, become like the short-sighted ones described by Peter. In 2 Peter 1, 5-9, through 9, Peter says this, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. All these are character traits of a Christian, right, that we should possess. Righteousness. They could all be summed up as righteousness, right? For if these things are yours and abound, he writes, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Now, I think, I think Peter is talking about what we might, for the lack of a better term, call a backslidden Christian here. He's talking about someone who who has been cleansed from his old sins. But in the course of his life, he got far enough away from the experience of his salvation and of the experience of hungering and thirsting for righteousness that once characterized his daily life that he's become short-sighted. He looks back at it and squints his eyes and tries to, to see and remember what that was like. And he's so short-sighted, he's virtually blind to what happened then. And he can't see it clearly. And that's a terrible place to be. And Peter's saying there's, the solution to that is to, as he said, add to your faith virtue, virtue knowledge, and so forth. I would put to you, the solution for that is to hunger and thirst for righteousness once again. 
Is it possible that some of us, after being beginning with a craving for righteousness or having experienced a time of growth in our Christian lives, we look back on those days as a distant memory and we've lost touch with the yearning for holiness that once characterized genuine repentance in our lives. And maybe we even cry out against the unrighteousness in the world around us. But we forget to do as our Lord Jesus said. And before we start to try to take the speck out of someone else's eyes, we remove the great log out of our own. I've probably felt like this. Someone once said, I don't always please you, Lord, but I think the fact that I want to please you pleases you. We've got to at least start there, right? If any of us are feeling spiritually weak and dry, then perhaps we can begin by asking God to renew in us a desire to please him, to to renew in us a fresh hunger and thirst for righteousness. Of course, we've got to go back to the beginning, and that is to recognize our poverty of spirit once again, which is where Jesus began these Beatitudes. Anyway, I've sought to answer that question, right, about uh, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? I've tried to kind of answer that question by looking closely at Scripture. What could Jesus have had in mind, and what should we think about that? The second question is this. How will those who hunger and thirst for righteousness be filled? Because he says, for they shall be filled. We've already seen part of the answer, right? Because we've seen, uh, for example, uh, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 look forward to the resurrection as the time when our craving for righteousness will ultimately be satisfied. That's when the kingdom comes in its fullness, right? In the future. But he wasn't the first to prophesy of this future promise. I think, I think this is in mind in the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah 61, 10 and 11, for example, where our departed brother Isaiah writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. That hasn't quite happened yet. So he's speaking of a righteousness that he has now, but of also a future time, right? When God will cause righteousness to be everywhere. But must we simply wait for the future? No, we can be satisfied even now, even if it's only a bit at a time. Right? Because we have a foretaste of the future, even now. We're saved even now, even though we're not fully saved till the resurrection, right? We're not glorified until then as Paul teaches in Romans 8, for example. I think the psalmist who wrote Psalm 107 described the goodness of God in this regard when he said in Psalm 107, verses 8 and 9, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, 
this is another way of saying I want everyone to love God for his goodness. This is a way of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, right? And for his wonderful works to the children of men, he says, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. This is just another way of talking about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness being satisfied. He doesn't have to wait for that future that Paul was talking about or Isaiah was talking about, and neither do we. Even if our, the ultimate fulfillment awaits the future, we can experience satisfaction even now on a daily basis. Of course, we have to remember also the promise of our Lord Jesus when he said in John six thirty five, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, we who have come to Christ with a hunger and thirst for righteousness will never have to go hungry again. We'll never have to go, never have to go thirsty again. Uh, to be sure, we'll experience the hunger again, for it's going to be continually with us. That's what Jesus is teaching about those who are in the kingdom of, of heaven. But as we're experiencing the hunger, we'll be experiencing the daily satisfaction of that hunger as well in Christ. How, how, how are we filled? Every day we get up and say, I already have a righteousness that is not my own. I'll see it in its fullness in the future resurrection, as Paul said. But I already have it now. I'm already justified. I'm already declared righteous. That's what being justified is, is being declared righteous by God. Now, I get to know the future heavenly verdict now as a done deal. When I stand before God in the future, I know what he's going to say because he's already said it. Justified. Righteous. Because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And because of that, I long to be more like him. I long to live a more righteous life every day. And I want to see righteousness all around me. And so I pray for that as Jesus teaches me to pray. And I don't long for it every day like I should. Some days I end the day disappointed in myself for not having longed for righteousness enough. But that very disappointment is a longing for what I missed out on that day. The righteousness I wanted to have more of. Because if you're in Christ, that's what you're like. You're not satisfied with not longing for righteousness. Because you want righteousness. Isn't that a wonderful thing that God does in our hearts? Sometimes he's done a deeper work in us than we even realize. And our very disappointment with ourselves is sometimes the indication of that. Because that's the renewal of poverty of spirit that is a characteristic of those who are in the kingdom. So maybe you're like me and you're disappointed in yourself. You don't feel like you've hungered and thirst for righteousness like you should. Well, then you're back in verse 3 already. 
experiencing your poverty of spirit. And that's a good place to be. Because that means you need, you know you have a need for righteousness that's not your own. And that in itself is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're not doing as badly as you think, is what I'm saying, if you're having the struggle. I'm worried about you if you're not having the struggle. If you don't long for righteousness and you don't care at all, then you're in big trouble. You're in danger of having a seared conscience, as Paul would call it. And you don't want to be like that. So what I'm saying today is if you've got any inkling in your heart at all that you need righteousness that you don't have, you're in a good place to be. That's exactly where you need to be. And you're doing better probably than you even realize if you're in that place. So don't get discouraged. God isn't finished with you yet. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. As Paul also told the Philippians as he looked for the resurrection. So don't lose heart. And if you become one of those short-sighted people who feel like you've lost touch with all of this and you're being convicted of it now, then praise God for that because that's a renewal of a hunger and thirst for righteousness in your heart. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Remember again the process. First, spiritual poverty. Got to realize you're spiritually poor. Everything you've tried to do to satisfy your own spiritual longing has been a broken cistern that will hold no water and will not satisfy. And you know it. And you know that only God can satisfy you. That's where you start. And you mourn. You mourn for your sins. You mourn over the poverty and the sin that accompanies it. Accompanies it, And then that results in meekness. All of which then lead to this deeper yearning for righteousness. The one who is truly repentant of his sins will always not only shun his sin, but also long for righteousness in its place. And that's what I wanted to share with you today. That's what I think Jesus is talking about here in this context. That's my putting it in the larger view of Scripture and trying to get a handle on what he must mean. Because he doesn't explain what he means by it. He gives us all sorts of other teachings that help us understand what he means by it, I believe. And I hope, I, I hope I'm at least on the right track. Let's pray. Holy Father... If there's anyone here like me today who reads these passages and always feels like they fall so far short, I read texts like this and I feel like I haven't even started to grow as a Christian. I'm, I'm so far from what I want to be. I'm glad I'm not what I once was. I'm glad and I thank you for all that you've done in me. But I want more. I'm not satisfied. And I think there are a lot of people here who feel the same way today. Lord, help us to just keep looking to you 
as our source of satisfaction, looking to Christ, who, as a perfectly sinless man, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead that we might have everlasting life, and is ascended to your right hand where he ever lives to intercede for all of those who have put their faith in him. For those of us who know you, Lord, renew in us this deeper longing for you like the deer that pants for the water books cause our souls to long for you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves lord and for those who haven't yet come to know you it's our prayer that you would do for him or her as i said earlier what you've done for the rest of us work in them lord this poverty of spirit work in them faith and repentance fill all their longings that can only be filled in you, we pray, by your grace, by your grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. We ask all these things for our good and for your glory, and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you once again for your kind attention.